Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. For me, if the risk of in doing harm is low compared to the impact that you could have by learning more about the culture, by promoting the wonders of that culture or identity, I think that you should still try to go for it. You should have a lot of protections around it, have a lot of disclaimers, and be open to being criticized. But I think it's still worth it. My name is Jeremy Gage, and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming to the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy Gage, as you heard in the intro. But as always, the show is never about me. Today, I have a great another international guest. Draw Your Dice is going global. So I am really excited to uh, bring her to you today. She is the curator of Across RPGC, a site dedicated to showcasing Southeast Asian tabletop RPG creators. She is graphic designer. She is game designer and is currently crushing a Kickstarter for the game we'll talk about today. I'd like to welcome to the show Momedos. <sighs> Hello, welcome. Oh, why did I? Why am I welcoming myself? <laughs> it's your show now. <laughs> I have taken over, but thank you so much for having me here. Yes, I am Momedos. I am all of the above. <laughs> And I am really happy because our Kickstarter has been going so well, but I'm really glad to be here with you today. Momentos, as an additional sort of, in case people aren't fully aware of who you are, do you just want to give a brief, any additional introduction to what I offered here today to let the folks know who you are? Okay, so I'm Momedos. I am a Filipina game and graphic designer. I started making games a couple of years ago, started making a Capybara Heist micro RPG, and now we're finally having a 
172-page full book. So it's like, it's been an interesting journey. And it's been a really fun ride as well. So, hello. <laughs> Additionally, as an icebreaker for the show, Momedos, what was sort of maybe your first RPG that you ever played, as well as what was you know, that got you into the hobby? And then what was uh, maybe the first game that sort of inspired you to start designing as well? So the first game I ever played, I think it was Legend of the Five Rings. The mm-hmm. Not the latest edition, the one where they still use a lot of the D10 pools. So I remember feeling really powerful because, wow, I could roll so many dice at once and then I get to... <laughs> To pick which ones I would actually um, add up for my role, but I end up adding the the two most highest values anyway. But it was, uh, I guess, really fun for me. I'm not so much, admittedly, because of the system, but because I played L5R with a lot of my fellow college friends who are also into Japanese culture. So being able to play uh, a role-playing game with a kind of supportive, fun group of friends made me really fall in love with some of the nicer aspects, the the positive, I guess, the connecting aspects of role-playing games. But of course, when I did start trying a game design much later on, I didn't. I actually uh, didn't focus on that. I just said, you know, I want to try Honey Heist, like the the micro RPG where your bears who are trying to steal something. But let's introduce a traitor mechanic. Screw this connection and friendship. <laughs> we are going to betray one another. So that was my very first game, um, Capybara Capers, which. Aside from the traitor mechanic, may or may not be an almost one is to one copy of Honey Heist. But, you know, but with capybaras, and I think the first ever person who bought it was on the Honey Heist designer himself. So I'm like, that, that absolves me of my sin. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's so amazing. That's a Honey Heist I want to play. <laughs> That's so good. Excellent. Well, I I love that. I've never actually played Legend of the Five Rings before. I've heard about it a lot, but... And you said you played an earlier edition of it. What... Have you played the the most recent Legend of the Five Rings edition? Oh, yeah. Yeah? I remember when... It was my first RPG that I ever played, but it's kind of also... You'd consider not an ideal first RPG because it's relatively crunchy, there is a setting and lore with a lot of weird peculiarities around it. Like they had their own specific like customs and they were in the in story it was quite strict that if you didn't follow along the, the rules of Pushido there would be some repercussions for a samurai. But uh, I got really used to it and I thought having all these crunchiness, having all of these things you need to track on your character sheet is is the way that normal RPG should go. And then later on, they did roll out the latest edition. Suddenly, the, the dice was different. It was a D12 with custom symbols. And you also had to say what consequences or opportunities were depending on your dice roll. So suddenly, mm-hmm. it's no longer a matter of rolling a bunch of D10s and then adding them all up. You ha- suddenly have to imagine on the spot a kind of narrative hook or complication. So it's like, what? <laughs> that- I just wanted to um, swing my sword around. <laughs> but um, 
It was actually also really fun. It was a different experience, but I appreciate that even with the same setting, you could a completely different take on it, and it could still be fun. Hmm. Well, I. It sounds like a totally different game now than it was. That's crazy. But hence, such as the new edition of a game. Momentos. Before we get into talking about today's game, Arc Doom, which is being amazing right now over on Kickstarter. I, I like to tap into a little bit talking about Across RPGC, the, the site you sort of curate. Talk about why you started that project and, you know, why you feel it, it needs to exist. All right. So actually, it is probably the project that I really want to keep on going, keep on sustaining, even months or even years after I've made it. Earlier this year, we had a really fantastic online convention called Session Zero Online, which gathered a lot of Southeast Asian RPG designers. I think at some point, we had like 80 exhibitors, artists, game designers, and there were around 600 people who signed up. So there was this fantastic wealth of information that was being shared and broadcasted in the event, it was a virtual con, so I actually log into the event space as a tiny little avatar, and then you go around visiting the booths, and when you interact with the booth, you'll see the website of the game designers. But when the event ended, I saw that there was an opportunity to make sure that all of the wonderful artifacts, games, and efforts don't stop after the event. Like, we still keep on sharing, we still keep on sustaining even though there is no live event in it all together. That's why I built Across RPGC, which basically pulls in data games from RPGC designers, puts it in a nice-looking website, and also makes it really easy and simple to discover new and possibly even favorite games. So I don't know if all readers, sorry, listeners would know what StumbleUpon is, but there was a time it was super popular and you just click a button, it will take you to a random site and it's like, oh, this is a neat site. Let's go to the next random one then. So across RPGC interface is kind of like that. It'll take you to random games, new games, PBTA, Dungeons and Dragons, even trick games. And I think it is a way to exhibit the breadth and depth of Southeast Asian RPGs that are out there. I love it. I love that energy. I think there should be so many more curations like that across the world as far as designers are concerned, not just European and American designers, but internationally. I think I think that's an amazing first step to broadening people's horizons and allowing them to discover things they may have never really discovered with blinders on. So thank you for creating and curating that. And I'm really happy to hear that you are going to, like, you would love for it to exist for forever, essentially. Well, let's let's get into the meat and potatoes of the show. Let's, let's talk about ARC. So I had access to the Quick Start, which is, it's a very amazing Quick Start. I think it's beautifully designed. But what, what was the sparking idea for ARC? Why create ARC? So a, a bit of a funny question. Usually when I get asked about this in interviews, I just remember being inspired by mechanics like clocks from like Blades in the Dark and also the idea of using the notion of limited time, which has been a theme mm-hmm. present in my previous games. 
But actually, I think the other day ago, uh, Facebook did this this thing where it showed, hey, this is your memory from two years ago. And then that memory was like me saying, hey, I just did my first major playtest of ARC. I hope people liked it. Somebody said it was OSR and PBTA. Is this my sore dream? Yay. So hey, it was just me being like um, super tentatively announcing that their, my newest game at the time was going well. And this was what somebody said. They did link it to Sword Dream. So Sword Dream was, I think, more popular in 2018. And it was kind of a, a movement in OSR just to establish themselves against some of the unsavory habits and discussions that has risen in that genre. So Sword Dream was basically saying um, we will have a an OSR space that is inclusive, that is diverse, that will even incorporate story and narrative and choices. So it's quite a diverse, not so sharply defined movement. But I remember at the time reading about Sword Dream and thinking this is something I really identify with because I, I do love some of the crunchier aspects of RPGs. I do love playing OSR a lot, but also seeing that opportunity to blend that with some of the narrative tools, narrative ideas, even from PBA, I thought, yes, let's do it. And then let's add clocks from Blades in the Dark, because that's cool. Yeah, just because I like it. Yeah, one of the things that I noted about the kick, uh, about the quick start is that, and from the general arc system, is that you care a lot about the concept of time. You have it rolled into basically the entire conception of the game, from the doom clocks to how rests operate both in game story time, but also in real life as well. I find that so fascinating. Uh, what is what is sort of the the obsession with time there? Not in a and not use obsession in a negative <laughs> way, but like why why was time a principle of design? So I guess there are two answers for me for that. The first is like the thematic, like the notion of being able to save the world, make a difference in a limited limited time was really appealing to me because suddenly it felt like you could make a bigger difference, a bigger impact on the world because this is your limited window and that would mean within the story, every action you make will matter because this is your time to shine. It's not forever, but because your time is so limited, that makes it so much more precious. And that's the, I would say, the the motive answer to that but also at a second point just to explain the context get really uh, high performance anxiety when GMing I like it but that's also why I tended very early on to do really guided micro RPGs or a heist with capybaras because I thought these are the fun things that I could manage but then I wanted to tell a more complex story while still having a structure that supports me. So managing to incorporate real-time, adding effectively a pacing tool into the game, which would guide the game into more and more tighter stakes as time would pass by and as time would run out, meant that the GM basically had a guide to making sure the momentum would keep going, the tensions would keep racing, and that eased up a lot of the pressure for me. 
and I hope for a lot of storytellers as well. I mean, when I have read it, it's I find so I also love clocks from Blades in the Dark. I love the milestone tracker from Iron Sworn. I am a huge fan of the concept of the Doom Clock for Ark. It almost has some like Dungeon World esque energy of like the fronts too. But I I think there is something to say about like classically in in D anD D there is the notion of like the meandering campaign where things just sort of happen when they happen and. I think that's why some games fizzle out is because you lost track of where the stakes are going or like what the sort of end goal is. And I am a really big fan of games, systems, mechanics that really play with the the concept of like a pressure clock, like in that, you know, you have 10 sessions to save the world or, you know, that's it. Like we have to yeah. we have to start doing doomsday. Right. And I also love how you've integrated the concept of like moments into each of those clock ticks as well. You know that this is a this is a defining section of time for your narrative. Let's play that out sort sort of effects. And I think that's really interesting. What about the the rest mechanics as well? Like you have people take in real life breaks when they either <laughs> have fallen or when they're trying to rest why why make that as well so the doomsday clock is basically the, the central mechanic but i felt it would feel more meaningful if time was also a real cause that popped up even in the other mechanics so that would mean some spells that requires real time components and also resting so suddenly it there's a bit of a give and take. You you need to rest to replenish your resources, your health, but that means you'd have to take a five minute break. And if there's only thirty minutes left on your real timer, maybe that's not such a smart decision anymore. So mm-hmm. I hope that adds a level of decision making as well into art games. Mm-hmm. And what I also like about it too is that I myself don't run like the longest I'll ever run a game for talking about GM performance things. <laughs> I don't run longer than three hour games for any anything. And I really love sometimes I can get like trapped in my seat and not like realize I need to take a break for me or anyone else because I'm like just so in the zone of like trying to operate essentially. And I really like that, you know, everyone has to take a moment to, like, maybe step away from the table, grab a snack or something, because the the, t- the game says, <laughs> you know, you don't get to play for five minutes, so, so do something with that, right? Yeah, like, go yeah. d- go take a, uh, a snack break, a bathroom break, whatever have you. I just, I think it's fascinating. I don't think I've ever come across a game that, that uses a mechanic like that so far in my career. And maybe there are like other time-based like LARPs and things like mm. that, but in a sort of adventure RPG, I've never experienced that. So I think it's very, very cool. You also have sort of like a basic D6 system that has a lot of affordances on it. Like why, why that, why the roll under system and everything of that nature? I think roll under, uh, some people love it. Some people don't. <laughs> for me, it was like, I don't know. I just found it kind of appealing because for me, it felt like it was much easier to compute because you're not adding anything on top of the roll. You just set mm-hmm. a target number. That's the one thing you compute. And then whatever comes up on your dice, that's it. Instant comparison. 
But the D6 mm-hmm. in particular, partially because it is one of the most common dices you can get. And mm-hmm. also because uh, the, the statistics is a bit easier for me to compute and to play test in my mind. And that also meant uh, sometimes it can get quite tense because your health isn't as high anymore, but your attacks could get quite swingy. Your uh, threshold number, the difficulty of each task could vary or feel significantly much more difficult or much more easier, which is one step up or down. So a lot of the decisions you make will have a tangible impact on the statistics of the game. So, for example, if you want to quickly adjust a particular scene so that you can say to your players, oh, this is much more harder compared to your usual scenario, you just add, uh, sorry, you just subtract minus one or minus two from the threshold number. But mm. if you try that with, for example, Dungeons and Dragons, you have to think, is this a minus five, a minus ten? Or something in between. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so I felt it was much easier to do on-the-snap decisions when you're dealing with such a small probability curve. That does mm-hmm. mean that it's not quite a very robust level of dice rolling. And for me, the D6 is not the most pleasing shape. <laughs> that would have to be... <laughs> that, that's a, such a super hyper-specific aesthetic choice. But I think... I, I like the shape of the D12. It rolls really nice. But I think nobody... Loves it as much as the D6. <laughs> it's a good boulder. It's a beautiful boulder. It is. It is. Yeah. What I think I love most about the system is probably the how you do the cross sections of like picking what to roll, like the approaches plus like skills and everything in between. I feel like there's some blades energy there as far as like the attributes plus actions things that they do in, in blades in the dark was was that a choice to like get more narrative what i'm saying is i think there's a lot of player power like player agency in your game i feel like everything is very the player's hands as far as like control and latitude for narrative creation i mean i haven't seen i have access to the guide toolkit inside the quick start and some of the creatures in there but i know that the the full game is much more robust than the the 20 page quick start that i that i read but yeah i feel like there's a lot of player power is that is that with intention do you sort of like want the guide to take more like a passive back seat and sort of watch things unfold and react to the players what's what's sort of the collaboration intent there that's a good question because a lot of the past talks I've had have been about player skill versus character skill when it comes to the role. But I guess now we're mm-hmm. talking about player agency and GM agency and collaboration, which is a bit more mm-hmm. meta. I guess it reflects freely on my desire for any character, any hero you make to be useful in any kind of situation, like if you made a stealth-based build in a traditional RPG, you're not going to be able to make use of your best skills in situations that don't require stealth. But mm-hmm. with Arc, it is much easier to apply the skills because you combine it with an approach, with how you solve problems, and they're generally much more open-ended. They're not hyper-specific that you only ever need to use them in that one particular scenario so i really love how that contributes to your agency because suddenly that means you can actually make meaningful use of every and any skill your character does even in scenarios where you think that skill didn't traditionally apply and for the gm 
I like how it would keep them on their toes because suddenly when the problem is like trying to deal with a very pesky uh, monster and the player asks if they could use like a, a cultural skill check to figure out how what they remember from folklore for that monster as the guide that suddenly encourages you to think of an out-of-the-box solution. I guess deal with the player agency and transform that into a meaningful outcome and a fun story for everyone. I I really also love that specific example of like the player using folklore to determine a monster's or creature's abilities or or tendencies or mannerisms. I've I don't I, I don't know there's just a lot of traditional RPGs that I feel don't allow for sort of that meta level of like, hey, GM, what what does this monster do? What have I heard, right? Like how common or, or how easy is for me to assess this information? I feel like there's always this hesitancy when it comes to more traditional GM games that like the players should either A, have never read the monster manual, or B, if they have to make suboptimal decisions for like, non non meta storytelling which isn't really a possibility etc cetera, etc cetera. but uh, i i love that your game allows for those styles of interactions in the game it's just it's just cool what i also love about your system is that and I guess this adds more to the player agency side of the conversation as well. You basically have the players create thresholds using their skills. Like all the difficulty comes from how the player built their character. It's not really set by the GM. And why I want to point that out is because when I, when I've played D and D, I think my least favorite thing about D and D is making up the difficulty check. Like, just creating an mm. abstract number that's not determined by anything other than sort of current fictional positioning. So, like, your DC-10 check is going to be vastly different from my DC-10 check, right? And it's all going to be different compared to, like, what's going on in the narrative. What I like about the player-created thresholds here is that the players are determining what is hard for them in the fiction, right? Stealthing may be difficult for me for me because both my approaches that I would normally take to it and the skill of stealth itself are both at ones, so I have to roll a two or lower, right? So yeah. <laughs> how easy is that on a d6? <laughs> so you really allow the players to tailor the sort of experiences that they want to be good at. And I think that's amazing. I, I think that just removing the guesswork of difficulty is a really astounding feat, in for, in my opinion. Is that something that came like from initial design, or was it something that sort of appeared as you kept working at the system? I think even in the earlier drafts, it was really working that way. It's also... I. One of the reasons that the roll-under system appealed to me because calculating that threshold number is easy and you just make a roll compared to that and you don't need to bother with modifiers or, as you've said, having arbitrary standards to measure that roll against. Um, mm. I, I found it really hard because what does a 10 mean in in, in, in a game, right? In the, in the D20 system, it's like what the average person could do. But you're also dealing with heroes who are supposed to be able to affect the world. So it, it's quite interesting. And 
moving that around, angling it so that it is an expression of the hero ability instead made much more sense to me. And of course, the, the mm-hmm. guide does have the ability to tweak that threshold number by minus one or plus one or so on, depending on the there is extra difficulty in the task, but it's an easy decision that they can quickly make. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all in the conversation of. It's kind of like the same thing as uh, position effect and blades in the dark is what it makes me think of. Is like, yeah, this situation is a minus one because they're prepared against. They have a lot of spotlights or or uh, magical wards or something like that. So it's just difficult to get in, regardless of what your abilities are. And I find that really fascinating. I find that really effective, and I think it. And I think most of this is a bias because that's what I look for in games as well. Just removing a lot of like the arbitrary numbers generation because you're already dealing with like arbitrary fictional positioning and imagination and theater of the mind stuff. So I don't I don't necessarily love systems that continue to have me do guesswork on top of that. So I think Arc is a is a triumph as far as its systems are concerned. Oh, uh, any. <laughs> what's your what's your favorite piece of design for arc? Like the the mechanics, the or other types of design. Any any types of design. Any to like what's your favorite piece of piece of arc that you? And the favorite piece of arc would be there is one in the book where it's basically just two hands trying to capture a bird that's flying away from a box, but the the hands are all tied up. For me, it was kind of it, it's. I guess it's quite abstract compared to a lot of traditional RPG artworks, but it came from a personal piece, which I guess looking back was kind of a a way for me to express how difficult it was to be creative, to capture your artistic or story vision. It's like trying to catch a bird that's flying away from you. So for me, that was my favorite art in the book. And what... Speaking, I guess, more mechanically or or for the writing of the book, what did you find like challenging to create or what what gave you a hard time as far as like you like couldn't either let like a darling die or uh, you just couldn't find an answer to a particular problem in the book? What was the most challenging piece of design for you? I think for me, the challenging pieces has been whether or not to lean into something really unique but perhaps something that would be hard for people to relate to or to play it safe. So in the, there is like a story set up, session zero prompts in one of the chapters. And one of the people reviewing who had an early copy said that he really loved the book. It gives it 95% out of 100. But why in the world in a book with so much unique, beautiful art, with the first setting, I suggest be Tolkien fantasy. So this is like, it's really there. I need to correct it. <laughs> I just need to sneakily change the order up. But these are some of the things that I think have been visible and significant struggles for me during game design. Whether or not I should play it safe and make callbacks to things like target number instead of threshold number. Should I use character classes because that's what people seem to like about games and should I add experience points and how do I deal with that so some of those things I'm not sure if I perfectly addressed or resolved but I think even despite that I still feel really proud that it still has its own voice its own identity 
And I guess it'll be a continuing progress to see how Ark's identity evolves from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it has really awesome fiction. I think that it has really awesome mechanics. I truly believe that that you've done a great job in addressing those challenges as far as as far as I'm concerned, but that's my personal bias. When the when the Kickstarter is over, what is what is the intended future of Arc? Like is there supplemental work you're thinking about? Is there additional design that you're thinking about for the game? Can I get an exclusive Mamados? Give it to me. <laughs> okay, so as for exclusives, somebody did ask would I consider like uh, an open gaming license? It mm-hmm. is top of mind for me. I really want to make sure we have a license in place so that people can make their own ideas, even sell their own ideas or adventures for art, and to make sure that it has a lifespan, you know, because one thing that I, I guess I'm always afraid of is we have a super successful Kickstarter, but three months later, nobody's gonna remember what it is. So I wanted to have long legs and life. One other thing has been, I have been quite open about, I guess, receiving interests for translation. So hopefully we mm-hmm. do get some things finalized when the Kickstarter ends so that we could share ARC to a more global audience. Aww, that's awesome. I love both of those. I definitely love the license as- aspect as well. It just shows sort of a uh, humbleness to let others create. So I I thank you for that. Well, Great. I think, is there anything else you want to add on to about ARC before we move on to the next section of podcast? I think maybe for ARC, something that I do, I haven't really been talking about is we have Guy Sugars on board as additional help with layout, especially for the adventures. But one thing that I really want to highlight with Guy is that he has a really big expertise and passion for accessibility. So I really hope that as we finalize ARC and get it released by the end of the Kickstarter campaign, we make sure that the PDF is not just usable and pretty, but also accessible to That's awesome. I'm really glad that's at the forefront of, of your mind, and I'm glad that they're on board for this. Amazing. Well, there will be links to the Kickstarter in the show notes down below everyone go go back it there's no reason not to honestly and then you know even if the kickstarter is over and you're listening to this two years from now go buy the game it's just a good game good learning experience i love it you love it momados loves it she made it So in the tabletop RPG industry of any facet, what are some trends that you're seeing in your social circles or your communities? Some pieces of design that people keep like talking about that they want to see or what are some trends that you're seeing that maybe you want to caution people against or what's a trend within you that you want to speak into the ether (laughs) to... Give any listener who's who's listening to this. 
That is actually, I was looking at it because you, you did send it to me ahead of time. And that was a really challenging question for me to tackle. I think my answer is kind of linked not just to my own belief or knowledge about this, but also my own way of addressing the meta of the question. Because something I tend to notice is some people ask, what do you notice about the RPG industry? Or what mm-hmm. is something that indie designers tend to do? And it always makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable because I I feel like it comes with the implicit assumption that we are all like a homogenous community. Like there is mm-hmm. one in the RPG space, there is one tabletop RPG game design community, and that ho- always struck me as kind of, I guess, being just false. One mm-hmm. trend, if I was going to identify a trend that I am seeing and I would really love you continue is having more i guess attention having more care being put in cultivating smaller regions smaller pockets of spaces of designers so we have rpgc we have rpg lat we even have um, a really robust community of people I've, i've met in france and also even larpers from italy i just really love seeing the diversity among everyone who loves to play tabletop games. And I think that is absolutely a trend we should embrace. Uh, diversity, and not just with, of course, our nationalities, our countries and our borders, but even how we express our identities. Gender identity, even neurodivergence, just recognizing that we are not a monolith. That is the one mm-hmm. trend that would absolutely love to see continue and even rise up in the future. I love that. I think that's a really good point because I know that, you know, I am American based and I, I'm sure there is an assumption for listeners that when I state that sort of question that it's, it's of the American tabletop space. And there are definitely, like you said, there are really cool pockets of, of industry out there that have their own state of culture and being and existence and then even more divergent as you go down and down into the layers well then i guess i would like to reframe the question then as far as like southeast asian a tabletop design what are some trends that you're seeing over there for for that culture i think among the southeast asian designers it's being more confident and being more powerful in expressing our own cultural identities. We see games that meld Philippine folklore with cyberpunk. We see games tackling things like Malaysian traffic. And we have so many other imagined worlds, imagined stories, but we are infusing more of our regional cultural identity, each of them. And I find mm-hmm. that it makes for a very beautiful, I guess, tapestry of games because suddenly it's we're not just saying the same story that's been repeated ad nauseum in Western fantasy. We're telling our stories, and that is a a trend that I've been. Re- I have a this. If you don't feel comfortable with this question, I totally understand. But I'd like to ask since you come from a different pocket of the tabletop industry and you're creating, a, you see a lot of people creating games with their identity in them. And I think I've asked this of a couple other designers on the show in the past, but how do you, like if I were to engage in an actual play, a live actual play on, on the internet of any game that sort of holds your identity, assuming that I'm taking the utmost care of it when I enact it, how do you feel about people 
who may not be uh, similar to you in culture executing on your stories, on your mythologies, on your cultural intricacies inside of your games? How do you feel about people role-playing it for entertainment on the internet? Ah, you added that second part, the entertainment for the yeah, internet, which yeah. complicates things a bit. I guess if I assume that this were like uh, a table... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Top scenario with friends or even strangers where I can assume good fit and that you're yes. absolutely not insisting that this is a correct, complete, full representation of an identity that you, you don't partake in. I'd even welcome it because it can help you open experiences. It can make you more curious about the culture and how you can apply it better in your role-playing. But when you start mm-hmm. adding an internet audience into it, like if you were even, say, profiting off from it, that, that gets a little bit complicated. Like even yeah. if you work off good faith, you can't assume the same the audience and you can't control what they will see, they will hear. And if... There is even any risk of them thinking this particular portrayal is where it is. This is the full stage. This is complete as it is. And I do not need to open my eyes or be more curious about this culture. That's going to be a problem. So I guess one way I would like to address it is by using something that I really (laughs) I have encountered in my day job, which is sadly quite corporate, which is. Uh, a risk-based approach. So for me, if the risk of doing harm is low compared to the impact that you could have by learning more about the culture, by promoting the wonders of that culture or identity, I think that you should still try to go for it. You should have a lot of protections around it, have a lot of disclaimers, and be open to being criticized. 
but I think it's still worth it. But if it is high risk, especially if it's an identity that is fraught with misunderstanding, a lot of truths and baggage surrounding it's how people perceive it. And if you are somebody who obviously has no idea what they're doing, just don't. <laughs> Mm-hmm, just don't mm-hmm. just really don't and if you're making money off it, it it's i don't like it but at the same time mm-hmm. a part of me also practically says that maybe this will help people support these identities these cultures by giving them a platform i just want to say you better make sure that what you're doing is inclusive and actually benefiting people from whose cultures and identities you're profiting off so you better mm-hmm. give back if that happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I want to be clear with anyone who's listening. This was not a question to get a permission from a single yep. individual. Yep. That's not what this was about. Uh, what I am thinking about as we're talking here today, and we talk about these different pockets of cultures that are creating and their subsections of the greater tabletop industry structure there are going to be more and more culturally influenced games out in the wild that people are going to back and like we don't know who has backed arc doom right we don't know whose hands that in who's going to want to do something like oh i want to showcase this to the world i want to put it on my twitch i want to put it on my youtube or whatever i want to do it for a podcast and i think what's important is that you for anyone that's thinking about doing that to really think about a, have the good faith, but also B, I think, and picking up from sort of the things that you mentioned, the things you cautioned against and the advice you gave, I think there's a collaboration element that needs to happen, maybe with the designer of the game, maybe with someone, maybe the designer is someone they can recommend that should be a part of the show or a part of the the live play, right? Those sorts of things, I think, is a, a sense of communication to make sure that no wires are being crossed about the intent of the story that the designer has intimately opened up for consumption right i think it's about taking the steps to connect and what's important i think even more important is connecting right connecting with the designer who is not of the same culture as you and and i i don't know i just I think about the future of, of tabletop a lot and I, I myself want to be a producer of streams and those are things I constantly think about. So I really thank you for your, for your advice here today. And I really thank you for putting your heart on the line in creation of, of your games. I think it's very beautiful. Do you want to add anything on top of that that I said? Do you want to, do you want to riff off that at all? I think, yeah, I think I just want to build on top of what you said about connecting because honestly, most of these creators, me included, are just a message away. It, it will cost you mm-hmm. literally no time just to check in, just to do your due diligence. Mm-hmm. We put ourselves mm-hmm. out there. The least you can do is contact us about it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Well, with that, we move into the last section here. Tips for the listeners. So you've had, I mean, I don't know, I'm making assumptions here, but it looks like you've had a great Kickstarter experience. You seem very, I love your energy. You have such a beautifully warm energy talking about this. You look really excited about ARC. Do you have any tips for listeners or tricks or advice of any format in terms of 
putting yourself out there. I mean, you have a very beautifully designed Kickstarter. You have a really great Twitter presence. How how did you do that? What were the what were the steps? What were the things you thought about when you were kind of creating this? brand's identity if you will i guess like always i'll answer it in in two aspects the first is the i guess the more marketing the more mechanical tactical way of approaching it so basically even in the lead up to kickstarter i just made sure i had a bank of information and content that i could put up in a consistent platform so people would have a way to learn about the project even if the launch page still isn't up so the the website having some info even on twitter and making sure that you connect even with a mailing list so you know that there would be people who will be closely watching this when it goes live and converting really fast when it's finally live so that is one aspect that I feel is absolutely essential for any Kickstarter, any campaign. But the second aspect, the one that I feel is much more important, is learning to connect or just, you know, be nice. <laughs> no, 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 nice is the wrong word, but just being able to nourish connections, connections that delight you, connections that make you pressured, rewarded, and give you inspiration. Just keep doing it, even if it doesn't benefit you um in any visible way like make friends be a good member of the community and you'll get to meet people and show these people you get to meet new ideas and they will help you in your campaign help you learn how to communicate better and keep amplifying your connection and your i guess your health within the community so eventually the marketing suddenly isn't just a dry tactical to-do list it's something that you look forward to because that means it shares something meaningful to you, to people who who you like and who you trust. Nourish is such a good word for this too. It's so like organic and warm and it's true. There's uh Recently, I've been reading a, a a marketing book, one that has a bit more of like a warm feel to it rather than just some, you know, white corporate man selling me his <laughs> thoughts on marketing. But one of the things that it talks about is it's called a friend of a friend. And the idea behind it is that every once in a while, like you should message someone that you haven't talked to in a, in a while and, and check in with their, what they're doing with their life and like their latest accomplishments, like find out about a person rather than trying to get something from a person and just keeping a pulse on those older relationships. If, if you want to, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say like talk to a bad person just because, but yeah, I think there's something for, relationships being like the key word here, like just fostering very normal, non-transactional relationships with people because I don't know, we're, we're human beings. We're not, we're not solo creatures. We're not private creatures at the end of the day. We need others to survive and help our communities grow and even at an animal basis. So I think that it's really important to get along and to find out about people. And you know what they say, an an interesting person is an interested person. So take that for what it's (laughs) worth, as cheesy as it is. Are you, are you, a one-person show here with all that you're doing on your Twitter and your Kickstarter? Like, is there any any other team members that are helping you with those sorts of marketing exploits? 
Right, so Exalted Funeral has been a big help. So they help connect me with some podcasts, some um, streamers. And of course, they're also doing, I believe, some Facebook ads. And a friend actually showed me a screenshot. It was actually pretty funny for me because it said, Ark is a game made primarily by Southeast Asian creators. So I thought, yes, it is me. I am creators. <laughs> but um, yeah, they've been helping with a lot of making sure we have our bases covered. And of course, the fantastic team of Jared Crater, you know, the guys, they have been, the editors have been such big support. And we also have a fantastic team of Dai Sugars, who I've mentioned, Alex Haifi, who's helping with sensitivity, and our stretch goal team members, many of whom sorry, not many, all of whom come from Southeast Asia and people I really admire and trust to take our arc into a really lovely, really long-term and system for everyone. My heart is so large right now with joy. Really awesome. Really, really cool. Really, really cool stuff. Well, with that, Momatos, I think that's going to bring us to the top of the show because I want to get you to bed. One last time, can you can you sign off with sort of where can people get in touch with you? Where can people find ARC? All these links that Momatos will be sharing with us today will be down in the show notes for your access listeners. Right. So hello, everyone. This is Momatos again. And you can find me on Twitter at Momatos, just posting about things I find interesting. Sometimes it's really weird horses, but sometimes it's also game design. And if you would like to know more about ARC, which I hope so because you just listened to a really long episode about it. Thank you so much for your interest. You can learn more by going to our website, arc-rpg.com. So if you go there, there will be links to the Kickstarter and even a quick start and a really nice Google Sheets character sheets that you can already use to start playing game so thank you so much the love and support has just been astounding and i really hope you enjoy the game awesome perfect well everyone thank you for joining us today on this episode of draw your dice i have certainly had a great time sitting down and talking to momatos and i hope you have too and we will see you next time say bye to the people momatos bye to the people Bye. Bye. Thank you, bye. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Momentos and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes, such as getting in touch with Momentos or other episodes with similar topics. If you want to be a part of the conversation, please come and join the community Discord server. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Draw Your Dice Patreon, where you can get access to early releases of episodes from as soon as we interview. Thanks again for stopping by, and as always, I will catch you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.